Kim, how did you go? Did you figure out um, how to download the readings, or did you decide it was a bit much effort? Hey, y'all. Hey, Erica. Hi. Oh, you know what? I'd already printed out like a third of the readings oh. separately. So okay. then I just decided um, I'll print sort of the rest out as yeah, they come that. So I, I'd nearly had them, yeah, mm. kind of organised. But I just love the idea of having it all in one spot. So yeah. um, it's so cool that you did I that. I'm just loving seeing all these instruments in, in your background here too. Yeah. Oh, I don't know if I can, ugh, I don't know if I can rotate it. No, I can't. I'm plugged in. Oh, wow. Somewhere out there. How beautiful. Uh, I'm not very good. <laughs> you obviously love it. And is that a kit in the back? Oh, yeah. Wow. Wow. I have no skills. <laughs> Yes, you do. You're amazing horsewoman, horsemanship. Oh, yes, Queen, you won. I've seen that. I won my first competition in five years. I haven't ridden for five years. I feel real smug about it. Awesome. <laughs> what was that? I was so happy for you. Oh, what thank was you. It, it was just like, it was just a local competition. Oh. <laughs> good for you, though. You did so thank good. You. And you look so lovely and so happy. I was so excited. <laughs> what what happened? What's something you did, Kim? Hi, Samson. Hi. Erica won Erica won a horse riding event. So ah, great. Yeah. That's exciting. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. That's some good news. I'm sure you would have had to put in a lot of training and effort to do that. So it's always nice when those things pay off, right? I actually came equal first with my absolute nemesis, so I feel really good about it. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. I, you know, sometimes, like, COVID is awful, and then you get given a gift, and this was my gift. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. And um, sharing something with your nemesis um, maybe can, like, equalise your relationship a little bit, you know, like, where you look, we're just as good as one another in this instance. Mm -hmm. Wait yeah. till next week. Yeah, that's cool. That's good. And it's good to hear um, positive stories when we're all trapped. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thanks for sharing that. It's nice. A few more people coming in. Oh, I'm somewhat boosted by the prospect of some optimistic news. So. We always find out in your classes, I feel like. Right, yeah, yeah. Um, well, that's kind of funny because we'll, we're going to explore um, uh, like how you associate certain things with certain events. <laughs> um, so that's actually quite funny. You could almost say, um, you know, maybe there's a correlation between my lectures and the news coming from Dan Andrews. <laughs> You'll see how that feature in the lecture in a minute it's funny i thought about your name this morning because i nearly didn't make this this uh seminar i was like oh i just want to hide and lay in bed under the doona uh, and then i was like it's samson and you know i think of samson samson and goliath and uh you know I, I thought i wonder what it's like having a name like samson with this archetypal this wonderful um story and energy behind it 
Mm. Yeah, that's 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 good. Um, I'm kind of glad anything will bring you to the seminar. So if that's what that was, then that's fine by me. But um, yeah, it's a it's a bit of a big name to live up to, isn't it? And everyone likes to joke, you know, getting your hair cut and all that kind of thing. If people are familiar with the biblical story of Samson having this incredible strength that he then lost because um, he was sort of manipulated by a woman who cut, cut his hair. But um, uh, it's a good name, uh, I think. And, um, yeah, I don't know if it's had any bearing on, on my life, whether I'm, I don't, I wouldn't say I'm physically strong, but maybe there's some other kind of strengths that come out of it. So, yeah. yeah. I think you're super strong last week watching the lecture and realising I so wanted to be there. I was thinking, oh, no, Samson's going to be there and thinking we're not really into the material and um, I just simply couldn't get, get my head around where the links were and stuff. But, mm. I just, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think we're all super brave just showing up. So. Yeah, totally. Yeah, totally. I'm really impressed by all of it. And and in the seminars as well, people coming and um, sharing things. And um, it's hard to stay motivated. Like, I'm not going to lie and say that I'm not subject to those same feelings as well. Um, but it's something nice about coming together and chatting and, you know, hopefully some of these ideas are engaging and it's kind of has moments of being enjoyable and just you can think about something else for a bit. So it's um, good to see everybody. I really appreciate it. And hopefully we will be back to seeing each other face-to-face because um, that's obviously much better. Nevertheless, um, I better get going. So let me share my screen. Okay, let's do it. Project my motivation. So um, good to see you all. Um, this is lecture three now um, for AFS 203 being human with the non-human. Um, and this also uh, delineates the fact that we've now, we're moving into module two now, which will be for this week and the following week. And in this module, we'll be dealing with the uh, ideas and thoughts concerning uh, classification. So, uh, what we'll be doing is we'll be looking at classification um, and sort of, uh, you know, considering that kind of those physical kind of relations that we talked about in relation to, you know, homo sapien, whatnot, that kind of taxonomy, but pushing further beyond that and considering why it is that we classify and categorize things the way they are, the way they are, and how certain things and events are categorized together. And so we'll be uh, doing that with recourse to other um, people's way of classifying, but critically we'll be reflecting on our own kind of taken for granted assumptions um, that comes along with our modes of classification. And in this kind of lecture, we'll be looking at 
more about uh, the particular ways of thinking and the certain sort of principles that underlie the way we categorize and classify the world. Um, and again, you know, revealing these taken for granted kind of um, assumptions so that there's particular kind of logical principles that inform the way we think about categorization that we don't even reflect upon. Uh, and so we're going to kind of be bringing them to light. This will then provide the foundation for what we'll be doing in week four, which is classifying uh, personhood and how that gets classified. Um, and that will be through with a focus on the reading by Mills in week four. So in this lecture, um, it sort of, you know, has a kind of similar vibe to lecture one where we were unpacking certain terms, right? That's in, in essence the kind of approach that we're doing that when it, with, when it comes to ways of classifying. So how we look at how do we classify and categorize certain things and we'll look at particular examples of that and we'll again be returning to our old mate Linnaeus um, and his system because uh, that sort of is the foundation for a lot of the way we classify and categorize things but we'll also be looking at something called ethnoclassification which is an approach and, a, and an, and an acknowledgement that other people's classify things differently to ourselves and that there's different kind of principles that underlie this way of thinking about the world. So what's kind of informing this is, you know, when we look at classification, it reveals how we categorize the environment in the way we do and how categorizations display certain priorities on ways of thinking and chains of inference, chains of inference, how things kind of relate to each other. Um, and what, by doing that, we'll sort of reveal how certain uh, modes of thinking, particularly to us in the West, are kind of foregrounded and prioritised. Um, and likewise, um, you know, how these perspectives are, set, are framed or enframed by things like science and how that sort of leads us to think in a particular way and therefore other sort of uh, modes of thought kind of fall by the wayside. And we might just, and we'll pick up on some of those other modes of thought um, and, and explore that. And we're going to do that with respect to two uh, uh, French thinkers, Lucien Lévy-Brou and Claude Lévy-Strauss, and these two thinkers will give us an entry point to probe some of the logical principles behind our own modes of classification and simultaneously reflect on um, other people's um, modes of classifying. Uh, so we will, that's kind of the outline for the lecture. So uh, we'll start off by just sort of going to the basics of our own uh, modes of uh, thinking when it regards to classification, just going to do a little bit of an exercise here that probably doesn't translate as well um, online, but nevertheless we'll do it. So I'm going to throw up a few pictures here. don't know why it does this, but anyway, a blank slide. Uh, here are some apples. 
to apples here. And some oranges. Some grapes. And finally, we have a tomato. So these are all fruit, right? Uh, we understand them as fruit. And, um, but, you know, there's this, uh, you know, a little bit of a difference here. It's almost like that Sesame Street song, you know, one of these things is not like the other. Well, in this case, uh, you know, in uh, uh, our class system of classification, these things are all the same, uh, we're all related, right? There, and there's certain botanical names that put them together. But, you know, principally the way I understand it, and I don't understand botany very well, is that, you know, they're all fruits because they're seed, they have seeds and they're propagated through seeds. And this is why goes informs why they're all classified together. But, you know, a tomato, for most of us, we would think about it as a vegetable. And there's a, a set, a sort of chain of inference attached to that, which puts it in salads and pasta dishes and more savoury type of things, right? So I'm kind of putting this here because, um, you know, we have uh, certain ways of classifying things that's in that groups things together and formed by a certain mentality. But we also have a sense that uh, things have their own place and we might not always reflect on it, but when it's put in front of us, it doesn't take much to kind of start assigning where things are. So, okay, we acknowledge their fruit, but really when um, I put this in this category. And so it's interesting to consider uh, how that happens quite quickly, but what we'll do is we'll kind of peel that back and we'll notice how there's a whole kind of sets of principles that inform that. So uh, now this is uh, what we would call, these are principles uh, that uh, correspond to classification. And so first of all, there's, you know, the naming of something. So that's kind of pretty straightforward. You know, you assign some names to it. We sort of looked at how naming's important because we explored some of the etymologies of things like human and person, and there's a certain sort of um, naming that goes to, to categorizing. But uh, there's also a sense of an ordering or putting in place according to what is thought to be shared or in common. So there's certain properties that are shared amongst these objects and puts them in a certain group. This is uh, kind of at the heart of what we'd call classical categorization. And that's our sort of uh, Western uh, classification, classical classification. There's also, a, when we classify, it reveals a chain of inference so that there's certain connections between things. We can infer these kind of connections between objects and actions. Um, and uh, number four, this is a more kind of philosophical approach and it's included because really the whole field, intellectual inquiry about classification is a big field. 
we will really only be considering points two and three, but it's a big field and point four is put there to kind of acknowledge it because this is a more kind of metaphysical, philosophical kind of way, uh, consideration of classification. Um, and there's a included a quote here by um, Italian philosopher, Giorgio Agamben, who says, that is to say, everything happens as if in our culture, life were, were what cannot be defined, yet precisely for this reason must be ceaselessly articulated and divided. So that's quite an interesting kind of philosophical point to reflect on those things that seem to kind of escape our definition are the ones where we try and sort of pursue them and continually divide and articulate and find a place for it. So we're not really going to be looking at that, um, but it's sort of worth putting there um, as a kind of uh, indication of this kind of field. I just And to reiterate, we'll focus on points two and three. So some of the central tenets of classical categories. So these categories occur when a thing is identified as a kind of thing. So you have the category of tree and within that there's all the other different types of trees, right? So there's a palm tree, I'm looking at my window, there's a eucalypt tree and these all come under the category tree. Likewise, you can think about clouds, there's clouds, but then there's, you know, uh, cumulus, cirrus, different types of clouds. And again, there's fruit, you know, and tomatoes are fruit. So there's uh, these, all these things come under this category because they all have kind of correlations and they're all of the same sort of kind. This also extends to uh, actions that are identified as a kind of action. So you have driving, but then you have driving a car, driving a plane, driving an aeroplane, so on. And likewise, you can think about something like carving, carving a piece of wood, some stone, some clay, and there's a particular action involved. Even though you might use different tools, you might use a knife or a chisel or whatnot, it's still the action of carving. You're taking something in its kind of gross form and refining it into something else. What these two kind of uh, phenomena uh, speak to is these categories are abstract containers of things and actions. So that they're uh, sort of abstract uh, over and above the kind of uh, materiality um, of things and that they can accommodate all these other different instances. Uh, you know, they can contain these different instances of trees uh, with an emphasis, as I said, on their common properties. So what's really interesting to consider here, I think anyway, is these abstract containers because through their kind of abstraction and they need to correlate to the real world, otherwise they sort of lose their meaning, but they are sort of above human action and influence, right? So 
nothing that I can do will really affect the category of tree uh, or carving, for example, even if I took some radical uh, form of carving, at some point someone will go, well, that's not carving, you, you've, you, you're not doing that anymore. Uh, so uh, it's a sort of over and above human ac uh, action. And in that respect, when that takes place, or due to that, there is a sense that there's, they're natural, that there's a kind of, you know, they're just naturally occurring. It's kind of taken for granted. And also that uh, they're universal. So that uh, any person would understand the category of tree. Uh, and, you know, that uh, plant out there with the trunk and leaves, that is a tree. And so that kind of category is just kind of widely applicable. That's the kind of inference that's happening there. So we are going to uh, sort of interrogate that a little bit, as you tend to do in anthropology, and question these kind of assumptions, uh, you know, around the kind of taken for granted assumptions around classical categories. Uh, in standing in relation to that is this uh, emergent sort of theory, prototype theory. And this is an approach that questions the absolutism of, and an immutability of classical categories. And it works through a prototype. So instead displays prototypically, namely the principle that certain members of a category constitute its prototype inasmuch as they are perceived as being the most representative of their class. And in this instance, a, a prototype theory can accommodate human capacities, neurophysiology, movement, memory, communication. And it presents a series of challenges to classical categories, which have a foundation of science, which is what the lack of reading kind of suggests. Now, I just want to sort of maybe offer up an example here that hopefully clarifies rather than confuse, so we'll find out. Um, and I'm drawing from an example of uh, from Philippe Descola, who we'll encounter a bit later in the course. In his book, Beyond Nature and Culture, he looks at the Noongar people, Aboriginal people of Southwest Australia, and he describes how they have a, a moiety, and in that, two different totems that describe two different types of people. And on the one hand, you have people that identify with a white cockatoo. And on the other hand, people who identify with a crow, you know, black crow. And that there's a certain disposition assigned to these people after the fact, so not the fact that uh, a cockatoo, so the cockatoo people are kind of getter, you know, go-getter people. Crow people are um, watchmen. And that's coming after the fact. That's not, you know, that these animals are like that. So we're going to put a sign up that way. And what's interesting to note uh, is that he's saying that, you know, if we think about the fact that these people are trying to delineate between each other, they're using the, the objects around them to make these contrasts. That's because it's sort of like, well, okay, why wouldn't they just use, say, night or day or, you know, you know, that brown snake and black snake, you know, if that's what, if that's all it's for, then why would they 
choose those birds. And then he considers how um, on, the, on the white cockatoo people, they're kind of have fairer skin, they're a little bit taller, their disposition's a little bit more open, a little bit more accommodating. But there are some other people who don't have those physical attributes, they're a bit short, have wavier hair. And on the other hand, with the crow people, they have slightly darker skin, they're kind of a little shorter, they have a bit more of a surly kind of disposition. And that within these two groups, then they use other animals to further break off. But the point he's trying to make is, is that these birds as forms of, as totems, uh, describe in the best way some of the physical and uh, emotional uh, attributes of the people that they're assigned to. But they don't cover everything. It's just that they offer the best example, the best principle. And that's the kind of understanding of a prototype. It's the best example and it accommodates um, a lot of things, but not sort of everything. And it's not so rigid. All right, here we go, this and that. And, and then other things, those other animals that they use have an articulation with that bird, uh, but it helps to uh, uh, sort of add more kind of texture down the fat. So that's the kind of that's the kind of orientation of this kind of thinking. Nevertheless, we come back to Linnaeus here just to return to our classical um, forms of uh, categorizing. Now, you know, we don't want to kind of I'm not trying to bash him over the head to all the time um, you know and also create a kind of straw man argument where you know Linnaeus stands in for all of sort of science with capital S um, it's just so and recall how he was sort of pretty adamant that he didn't really want you know homo sapiens to be separated from primates so you know um, uh, you know had these kind of keen observations and he was kind of convicted in what he was doing Nevertheless, this is the kind of this binomial classification is, you know, what we kind of work with uh, in the West. So we're revisiting it here and all these kind of uh, tiers, classification, kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, species. And what we sort of want to point out in, in this instance is how once you get to the level of species, um, it, th this, this level you can, an, uh, uh, being, can only sort of occupy this one space. It can't, you know, in this instance, Camelus bacterianus, it occupies this level of species. It can't then occupy a space, another species elsewhere. So, it, this kind of system kind of puts things into their place and that's sort of it, you know, that's where you stay. Um, and that's uh, how that kind of operates. So I just want to flag that as a kind of uh, critical um, aspect of this classification. But this sort of isn't uh, always the case, but, uh, and to think through this further, we'll turn to ethno classification. So ethno classification, as you know, we talked about ethnography and eth 
no, you know, meaning for people. This is the kind of recognition that different groups and cultures have different ways of classifying the environment around them. And that, you know, a lot of anthropologists went out and started to notice this fact and tried to record, articulate and delineate different modes of classification. And this sort of started to happen from the 1950s onwards and some notable people involved in this uh, sort of endeavor. Uh, someone like Conklin is quite uh, famous. And he sort of noticed, for example, in the Philippines, there's this sense that the color brown is associated with wetness, that you can't separate these things out. There's a kind of context to it. And some of you who might have done ASS 102 might have looked at the Saipia Wharf hypothesis and you know how different cultures kind of it didn't there was no delineation between blue and green for example they for some it was the same color and and likewise or other kind of different contrasts so there's an attempt to kind of really kind of capture the, the thinking behind that then in the 1980s i just want to flag that this took on a different sort of uh sort of aura uh or approach in the concern with traditional ecological knowledge and this was a kind of sense that there was something to be something critical to be understood and important to be understood um, in uh, more indigenous ways of understanding things so for example you know uh, if you look at classification we'll understand that these certain plants are fire resistant and there's something to be in something important to kind of understand about that uh, likewise, there was this kind of pursuit, well, medicinal plants. So if you go on Amazon and you understand different categories around medicinal plants, well, that's, we maybe we'll find some new medicines. And so there's that kind of sense of um, conservation, environmentalism, and, you know, maybe you could almost put it down to sort of exploitation in some cases. So that's another strand of that thinking. But the point sort of will be um, that a lot of these approaches are still kind of developed and couched in our perceptions of classification. Um, so we'll kind of explore that uh, now. So there were a couple of key thinkers in ethnic classification and different approaches through these thinkers. So the first person was Berlin. And he came up with uh, different ranks, different kind of ranks of taxa that things could fit into. And it was sort of along this kind of linear line, unique beginner, life form, generic, specific, varietal. Um, and he constrained these hierarchies. So he sort of formulated this system prior to going into the field and engaging with other peoples and so he sort of and you know you remember how lecture one I was talking about anthropologies and in inductive science well what he's doing is deductive he's coming up with something first and then going in to sort of find it and hone it what kind of happens in that respect is that you then are kind of put in a position where you're trying to sort of almost fit things into these categories um, and 
uh, by doing that, there's a propensity to maybe not uh, consider, uh, you know, how things are as they are on the on the ground, so to say. So it it it, it makes a kind of neat system and quite tidy, but doesn't really capture, you know, the way people classify things uh, amongst themselves. On the other hand, you had someone, uh, you had Bulma. He came up with uh, a, a taxa, still kind of hierarchical, primary, secondary, tertiary, and so on. And he was more inclined to allow the data to kind of find its own place in this system and, and kind of fall into particular places. And he prioritised the relationships that people uh, had with their environment. And in this respect, his system was a lot messier and maybe not as neat as Bulma's, but you might say it was a little bit more accurate of the systems that uh, he was trying to describe. So there's some two strands there. This next one, I just want to show you. Uh, can I? Now, don't worry too much about this list on the left-hand side. You don't need to kind of jot it down. But this is uh, an instance taken from uh, Anna Singh's book, uh, Friction, where she's working amongst the Maritas Dayak people in Kalimantan, Indonesia. Now, on the, this left hand side this is a list and it goes on and on and on in the book for hundreds and she puts it in the margins of the page what she's trying to do is bring in some of the elements of the Linnaean classification system and then try and include some of the forms of classification that some of her informants are telling her so you'll note here you know this fish is three fingers wide it's ears big my arm and these are all beings in the water and she has various other ones and so here's a kind of sense of like trying to a kind of hybrid kind of form. Now this is, you know, she this is self-consciously engaging with science. Like she says, this is um, this list is self-consciously globalist. And what she's trying to do is come up with this list in order to show um, people entities that want to have a very kind of destructive, extractive relationship with the people of this area. And so here here's a way that you can understand the kind of biodiversity and the, the, the reasons to conserve something. So it has to have this scientific element so people can understand, but I'm trying to kind of bring in the perspective of the people that I'm working with. Um, so there's a kind of activism attentive to this and she's not sort of saying I'm trying to accurately uh, depict, oh, I'm, I, well I am, but I'm doing it in a particular way. But this is a sort of another instance in that traditional ecological knowledge kind of approach. So the what? Oh, and actually, uh, just on that, um, uh, another thing that kind of uh, leapt out at me the other day, uh, uh, looking at uh, in Marilyn Stratton's most recent book called Relations, she uh, gives this really quite interesting example, I think, uh, of this same sort of traditional ecological knowledge approach where in Papua New Guinea, there was a bunch of sort of ac experts and academics that went into a particular village, working with some of the indigenous people to kind of 
do a similar thing that Anna Singh did, collect all this information about the kind of uh, biodiversity that's there and some of the medicinal plants and whatnot. And anyway, they collated this list and then they went to a university in Papua New Guinea to kind of present the information. And some of the Indigenous people who were there uh, were sort of said, okay, well, what's going on here? So, well, who has ownership of this knowledge and list that you've produced? And uh, who told you about this? And the photos that you've got, well, um, you have, who are you going to circle that, circulate them amongst? And what she was trying to point out was that in that project, there was a particular uh, uh, epistemological assumption from the West that knowledge can be sort of taken and pulled up out of its context and then circulated amongst other people, where the people who are pushing back were saying, this knowledge is situated in its context and it's relational. So that there's particular knowledge that elders have about medicinal plants, and that that is circulated amongst a certain group of people. So what are you doing with that? And I think that was just such a really interesting example uh, about the, this kind of um, situated, relational knowledge that isn't kind of contingent on these abstract containers. So um, that was a sort of interesting kind of example to throw in there. Uh, now, um, I can see if this keeps getting in the way. Um, so, despite attending to the ethno-classificatory differences, neither Bulma, Berlin or Bulma, and you could argue and a single the other examples I give, really never truly get away from their original scientific training. And there's certain dispositions and assumptions that are brought to these, even if it's self-consciously scientific, you know, uh, why do you think that that knowledge can be freely circulated amongst people, for example? So there's these kind of assumptions that we're bringing to it, uh, to these types of classifications. Fundamental assumptions regarding consubstantiality, remember we talked about that in relation to Glasgow and, and contemporality. Now, uh, where we can see the kind of limitations potentially of these forms of classifications is if we reflect upon the statement that is presented in this week's reading by Evans Princhard, which is, a twin is not a person, he is a bird. And this kind of statement kind of then kind of puts a kind of um, throw the spander in the works for these other types of ethno-classificatory systems. Because there can, in these other systems, you know, there's an inability that two, two things can't, one thing can't be two things at once. And we sort of touched on that somewhat uh, when we talked about the Tibetan mountain, right? So it's a mountain and it's a deity. And the Yukigir sort of spoke about there's, you know, animals and personhood, but these kind of shift, right? You know, uh, once the Yukigir killed the elk, uh, it was no longer a person. This statement pushes this even further and says, no, these are, these are a per person and a bird at the same time. And uh, when we'll explore it in the seminars, 
Evans Pritchard explores some answers that, that might help us understand that, you know, there's prohibitions, uh, you know, the statement's not always true or it's just a metaphor. But we're going to sort of push past that and consider the implications of thinking about this statement. So why does this statement sort of confound us? Well, what's being implicated in this is uh, one of our logical principles, which is the principle of non-contradiction. So what's a contradiction? Well, there's sort of a lot of different answers to that depending on where you stand in the social sciences, but really it's something that defies logic. So how can a person be both a person and a bird at the same time? That's a contradiction for us. So before going into this further, we need to sort of under, go a little bit further to what underlies this logic. So the principle of non-contradiction states that one thing cannot be both itself and something else. What is activated in this is this sense of mutual exclusion, mutual exclusivity. So it must be either X or Y, cannot be both X and Y. It has to be this exclusivity between the two. And this principle also rests on assumption of time and space, namely a simultaneous exclusion. So for example, how can a cat that was in one place at one time be also at another place at another time? And likewise, how can one thing in one place at one time be also another thing at a place at another time? So we can deal with progression or multiplicity over time and space. So I can be here now and over there later, or I can and like, uh, but we can't kind of tolerate the two things occurring at once. That is a contradiction. Um, and that's kind of what we're speaking about here, the law of non-contradiction. Just as an example um, of my own kind of stuff, um, here's a picture of me in Myanmar at a kind of famous uh, uh, Buddhist religious site. And unfortunately, uh, obviously what's kind of interesting is this rock is so precarious on the edge here. And unfortunately there was no photos that really captured that without having me looking like a dork standing in there. So that's just how that happened. But this was quite a long time ago and this was more, uh, this has nothing to do with my field work, I was just traveling. Uh, the reason I raised this is because what's so mystical and interesting about this place is that it's supposed that the Buddha, Siddhartha Gautama, visited this place in Myanmar. He gave some of his hair to a monk in one of the, the temples, uh, caves here, and it's on this piece of Buddha's hair that this rock sort of sits precariously and stops it from falling off. Now, some of you uh, may have gone, you know, visited places in Asia and visited different Buddhist countries. And you may be aware of the fact that many Buddhist countries say, well, Buddha came here. Or, you know, this is a relic of the Buddha. This is some of his hair. This is some of his tooth or whatnot. And certainly in Sri Lanka, that is definitely the case. And now a lot of monks, some monks have said to me, well, once he reached his, this sort of higher sense of self and enlightenment, he could fly, he could levitate. But many said, well, you know, he could be in multiple places at the same time. He could be in Sri Lanka and be in Myanmar or Burma. Now, this is an example of that's 
you know, it confounds our logic because we can't have um, someone being in the same place at the same time. So that's sort of um, example I sort of offer up there. So to return to our principle of non-contradiction, what we also need to consider is the logic of cause and effect, which is something causes an effect. They're pretty straightforward, right? Um, and, you know, for example, your cat jumps up onto the bench and swipes off your glass and it falls. And so the cat is the cause uh, for the effect of the glass falling off the table. So it sort of is reasonably straightforward. This is a process that we observe every day. But I'm just going to offer up some other statements to kind of give some more uh, texture to this. Uh, consider the next statement. So the women's four by 100 freestyle swimming relay team won gold because they trained really hard. So that almost sort of sounds, you know, on the money, right? That's why that was the case. But what we would say is there may have been some other mitigating factors in that, right? So likewise, one of the other teams may not have been able to train quite as hard because of the COVID situation. Or maybe someone in the American team contracted COVID and had to pull out. So there, it's not necessarily uh, such a direct correlation in that instance. Likewise, we've got another instance, heavy rains created slippery roads, resulting in multiple car accidents. That might be the case, but in this instance, maybe some of those drivers are a little bit more inexperienced than others, or maybe that particular piece of road um, had a pothole or a light down in that case. And so there was other things uh, uh, coming into the mix. And finally, I had, well, it's funny, I, I should have taken this out because it suddenly makes me feel, yeah, I'm kind of bringing on bad omens. But anyway, I had a dream, I contracted COVID-19 and then I did touch from wood while I say that. Um, and so that's another interesting one where it sort of it seems as if, you know, I had the dream and then it happened. So therefore, you know, maybe that's what caused it. So what kind of happens in these kind of last instances, especially in the sort of last example is there's a causal connection posited solely on the temporal order so the way in the time frame in which it happens and when you conflate cause and antecedent that is the thing that's already happened therefore there's it invokes the fallacy of post hoc which is another logical principle so the fallacy you know after the fact so this has this is evident in over emphasis on time sequence or order of succession. So if you think about lots of some sports people or gamblers, they have little rituals that they perform before they go and engage in their activities. Or, you know, gamblers have particular machines that they really like to use because at one point doing so, uh, you know, meant that they succeeded or there's an association there. And therefore they have to, they want to keep doing it in order to kind of secure some success. Now, you know, that's, that's sort of correlating the fact, you know, after the fact. Uh, once, you know, I've won, I've then thought about what I did that made that sort of so. And we, can, we often call this superstition, um, but it's sort of uh, in that logical principle, the fallacy of the post hoc. 
So we can also consider that in respect to the Avandi, um, you know, from the set text of ASS 101. And, where the boy was sort of running along the path and he stubbed his toe, which got infected. And the cause of it was witchcraft rather than being careless or running. So the, the point being that he goes along that path all the time. And in that instance, this is what happened and that's kind of out of the ordinary. So in this case, that sort of, you know, fallacy of post hoc in the kind of um, considering the event after the fact. Now, what I would just want to be kind of, cautious here is that we're not sort of uh, judging um, and you know there's a fallacy you know simply we're just sort of pointing out our logical principle how, that we have how that works and we're not sort of saying that you know the Azandi witchcraft is kind of some you know illogical kind of thing in, in consideration of this principle and to further elaborate on that aspect we can now turn to Levy Brule, who says in his work, let us abandon the attempt to refer their, he means sort of like pre-modern people, their mental activity to an inferior variety of our own. So um, now we can kind of move on to Levy Brule. So he was a French philosopher and his works were inspired by anthropology and, psych and the psychology study of indigenous people. And he was influenced by, by, by Durkheim and his understanding of collective representations and the study of religion as an entry point into the study of science, but he was sort of um, critical of some of those kind of perspectives. Now he's important because um, he uh, claimed that primitive thought and representative representation should not be understood only according to our terms. And he contributed a different theory of knowledge, one that posits a radical difference between mystical and scientific thought. Now, he published his book, How Native People Think in 1926. So this is kind of radical for the time. And, um, but, you know, obviously problematic a little bit talking about primitive people and whatnot. So we kind of have to just sort of put that to the side while we think about his own writings. So he developed this idea of the law of participation. It's proposed an alternative law to the principle of non-contradiction, namely the law of participation. And so I'll just read this quote here. So phenomena can be, though in a way incomprehensible to us, both themselves and something other than themselves. In a fashion which is no less incomprehensible, they give forth and they receive mystical powers virtues, qualities, influences, which make themselves felt outside without ceasing to remain where they are. So this is the law of participation. And the modes of the law of participation, which are contact, transference, sympathy, and telekinesis, and so on. So this is sort of suggesting that things can be one thing and the other at the same time. And there's these sort of kind of connections between the kind of uh, objects and entities. And his example is the, the Boros people are red pararas, parakeets. So what they desire to express by it is actual identity. So to kind of unpack this a little bit, there's two kind of ways, two kind of um, 
elements that he offers up to think about this further, so the mystical and pre-logical in the collective. So when concerned with the content of representation, he calls it mystical. When concerned with the connections between phenomenal, he calls it pre-logical. But not mystical in the sense of Durkheim's view of the religious, and not pre-logical as like, you know, prior to uh, logic that it, you know, and therefore it'll kind of progress into a more refined version. And it's not anti-logical, it's not a-logical, it's a logic of a different order. In that it does not bind itself down as our thoughts do, does to avoiding contradiction. It obeys the law of participation first and foremost, thus oriented, it does not expressly delight in what is contradictory, which would make it merely absurd in our eyes, but neither does it take pains to avoid it. So it's often wholly indifferent to it, contradiction, and that makes it so hard to follow. So what he's saying in this law of participation is that there is, that these people understand, recognise contradiction, but they're just not so hung up on it. They're not so concerned with it. It doesn't pose a kind of impassable obstacle to them. They can kind of pass over it. Um, and that's the kind of critical point that he's kind of demonstrating. But critically, he's saying it's not as if they, um, you know, have this kind of primitive primitive mentality. It's just a, it just has its own different kind of principles and pri priorities, particularly. And returning to these first two uh, points, so the mystical, his understanding of the mystical is the kind of properties or essences or these mystical potentials that these objects and uh, entities have. And then the pre-logical is how these things, that force connects things up, uh, even at a distance. So we can sort of almost think a little bit about embodied relationality, right? How they kind of, you have this kind of connection with country and how you can kind of feel it in your body. That's sort of what he's, sort of you could almost understand describing in his own way and in this kind of order law of participation and pre-logical there's no real sort of chance or luck right there's, a, there's these kind of connections that are, take place so that was sort of levy brawl now um, we're running out of time a little bit, so I have to go quickly. We've got Claude Levi-Strauss, and he sort of argues in, this, uh, in a similar vein and takes it a little bit further. So he's a very famous French anthropologist who's best known for his contribution to structuralism. And he had a book called La Pensée Sauvage, The Savage Mind. And in the same spirit as levi Brule, he's trying to assert that and consider different cultures' forms of classification and how they must be understood in their own terms. And he insists that um, this sort of primitive mentality is no less scientific than ours. It's just of a different order. And so he does what Levy Brawl is doing, but with much more, I'd probably argue in a bit more detail. Um, uh, it goes into a lot more depth. And behind his thinking, and in the, it's a recommended reading, he looks at the idea of the bricoleur. And this is the person who uses whatever is that, well, this is a kind of real concept in the, in the French thinking. It's kind of like a handyman. You come in and, but you'll just use whatever's at hand to kind of fix things and create things. He uses this as a concept in the work to think about Indigenous peoples, how they'll use whatever's around them 
um, to create um, and make uh, kind of uh, forms of classification which are constrained by the past um, and its original intents and work with science. So remember that example I talked about the Nanga. Well, Descalar is almost pushing past that, but in the sense of, you know, they're using what's at hand, what these birds and whatnot, we're going to use that to classify ourselves and, 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 and pull that apart and use all those kind of signs and metonyms to, to classify ourselves. Um, on the other hand, an engineer works in a particular relationship between nature and culture, definable in terms of his particular period, civilization, materials at his disposal, yet also attempts to make his way out of and go beyond the constraints imposed by a particular civilization. Engineer works with concepts. So this is given greater credence in the recommended reading. And finally, Levi-Strauss is sort of making a case for the fact that to transfer a weed into a cultivated plant a wild beast into a domestic animal to produce in either of these nutritious or technologically useful properties, there is no doubt that all of these achievements require a genuinely scientific attitude, sustained and watchful interest and desire for knowledge in it for its own sake. So he looks at classification in its in, in such detail to capture that complexity because it's no less sophisticated than the science that we understand. It just works with different axes of logic and he gives so much space and credence to that it's a very lucid account and you when you do read it you really get the impression wow you know this is these are complex ways of understanding the world that is no less sort of um, sophisticated than our kind of modern kind of purview on science okay i've run up into time there so um Good to see you all and I'll see you in the seminar groups in a minute. Great to see you in the next Zoom meeting. Thanks, Thanks everyone. Thank you. Wonderful. Bye.